0: This passage about Abraham is actually the largest section of Hebrews 11 on a particular individual, and I think rightfully so because uh, Abraham is uh, a towering figure in the Old Testament and also no doubt the most frequent example of faith in the New Testament. Uh, Paul loves to quote Uh, the account of Abraham's salvation. He believed in God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And so uh, we have a long section here on Abraham. Uh, We have talked about Abel, of course, Enoch, and Noah both walked with God. Abraham, uh, uh, we see perseverance in the faith as he left Ur of the Chaldees and went all the way to the Promised Land. Let me uh, show you what we've covered in, in uh, a few verses in Hebrews 11. The writer has taken us through uh, centuries of Old Testament history uh, because uh, the Old Testament moves quickly in the book of Genesis from chapter 1 up to chapter 12 where Abraham begins. Uh, we started out, you know. we think about the Garden of Eden, a dispensation of innocence, uh, where God gave a test of, of eating certain trees and not eating uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They failed in that test, and so God put them out of the garden. So the first person we have mentioned is Abel, who lived after that in what we might call the dispensation of conscience, and actually Enoch did too. So in this time when the Holy Spirit was working on the conscience of individuals, uh, of course, they had a responsibility to respond to the Holy Spirit. But generally, the population failed in that, and God brought judgment of flooding the whole world. And so uh, by the time we went through Abel and Enoch, and then thirdly, Noah, we've gone all the way up to the time of the flood. And then, of course, there's this dispensation of human government where Noah comes off the ark and establishes these things before God. God says, uh, administrate your affairs well. But the next thing we find in a couple chapters is they build a tower of Babel and God judges them again and disperses the language and disperses people to all corners of the earth And as they're dispersed all over, we find at the end of that uh, genealogy in chapter 10 uh, and chapter 11 that God brings one man uh, to his attention, and that man is Abraham. And says, now I will work through this man, and I will give him a promise. And we have what we generally call the dispensation of promise. And a lot of that promise is, I'm going to take you to the land, I'm going to give you that land, you stay in it. Well, Abraham did, Isaac did, Jacob mostly did, and Joseph, at the end of his life, ended up in Egypt. And God uh, punishes them in Egypt again. And so we cover a lot of distance, is my point, even uh, by the time we get here to uh, the story of Abraham in verse 8, we've gone all that way in the Old Testament. Now, we didn't read, or we skipped over, the life of Sarah. I'm going to come back to Sarah a little bit. But uh, then in verses 13 to 16, a kind of a summary of what all of these characters in the Old Testament uh, had to see. Notice verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were persuaded of them, They embraced them and then confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. In other words, all of these people said, I don't belong here. I belong where God is. I I belong in the next life. Verse 14 says, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, a patrida, a fatherland. We talk about motherland sometimes, but, but that's the fatherland. And truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out they might have had opportunity to have returned but now they desire a better country that is a heavenly one whereof God is not ashamed to be called their God for he hath prepared for them a city and God really has prepared for us a city Abraham said I'm tired of dwelling in tents <laughs> I'm ready I'm ready to live in a building in a house It has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Well, this has great uh, application to us today uh, because uh, we are on a journey too. And we are on a journey from this earth to heaven, at least if you know the Lord as your Savior all, of, all human beings are on their journey from this earth to the afterlife, but there are two afterlives, of course, one in heaven, one in hell, one with God, one without God. Ur of the Chaldes where God calls Abraham out of, is like our old life. That's what we were before we knew the Lord. That's what, we, that's what we would have been if we'd have never been saved. We'd have lived in Ur of the Chaldees like, like they did. But God calls us, and we responded to that call, and so now we're following Him, and we're walking with Him. We don't know even all where we're going, but God says, go here, go there, and we do it. And then as Abraham was looking for a promised land, you and I are looking for a promised land. And that land that we haven't seen yet either is called heaven, and we will be there one day. But you know, are our words and our thoughts and our actions about heaven or more about this earth? Uh, Our problem is that we're kind of like the Israelites, and God brought them out of Egypt, but they kept wanting to go back to Egypt. (laughs) always kept wanting to think about those things and think about what they've missed, and and their heart was was, uh, back there instead of where they were going. And sometimes we're like that uh, a lot, isn't it? Well, you know, in this dispensation of grace in which we live, and praise the Lord for it, and I'm glad that we live in this dispensation. You know, we live in a time and have for 2,000 years where God gives us instruction, but the penalty is not immediate. Whereas in those Old Testament times, if they disobeyed, God punished them right then. God punished them in a very number of different ways. But to you and me, God gives us his law, that is his word, God gives us instruction of what he wants, but he's not going to take account until the end of it all. So the earth isn't going to open up and swallow us up and and we drop down straight into the pit, you know, like they did in the Old Testament or something like that. But the penalty is later. Can you handle that? Can you handle it when somebody says, this is what I want you to do, but I'm not going to take account of it until the end of your life then how do you live? What do you do? You know, we fail in that freedom of responsibility because it takes love to follow such a command. When the one who's given you the command says, I'm not going to take account now. I'm going to take account when it's all said and done. Just do what I ask you to do. Then it is only love that is going to say, then I will do it because I love you and I appreciate what you've done for me. Our judgment will be at the bema seat of Christ. Our judgment will be when we see the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and there will be w- reward or loss of reward at that time. Well, let's look at Abraham here and see three things that these passages tell us in three statements, and I have them for you in your bulletin in, in three statements there that we see uh, first in verse 8 secondly in verses 9 and 10, and then thirdly down to verses 17 to 19. First of all, Abraham obeyed God's call. Let let me show you this as an overall picture before we start. Abraham obeyed God. Even Paul often says, you know, in, in Genesis 15, Uh, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can say with point number one, I obeyed God. God called me, and I said yes. God said, come this way, and I went that way. That's kind of what we see here in the first point. In the second point, he sojourned in the land. That is, he was traveling, and God was leading him. That's where you are in your Christian life. As you walk through this life, God is directing you and leading you and saying, here, walk with me, and I'll walk with you, and this is where we'll go. How are you doing with that? And then lastly, by faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. Then comes a real test in your life, a time that is a a test of real faith. And how do you do when those real tests of faith come? Uh, And there couldn't have been a greater test of faith. Uh, than what Abraham experienced with Isaac. So let's look at these three things. First of all, Abraham obeyed God's call. Uh, He went out, uh, we're told, uh, called into a place which he should afterward receive an inheritance. And notice uh, two thoughts. Number one, Abraham believed God's call before he knew all the details. Because it says at the end of the verse... Uh, at the end of verse 8, not knowing whether he went. Okay, Abraham, let's go. We might say, well, where are we going? Where is it you're taking me? And God didn't give Abraham that information. Just said, let's go. And so he had to go. And uh, he knew he was leaving, but he didn't know exactly where he was going. Ur er, the Chaldees, where he was from, As I said, a picture of the world. This is the old life. This is paganism. This is where you do what you want to do. You live the way you want to live. You you live by the gods of the culture. That's what Ur of the Chaldees represented. But God called him out of that. God called him out of that old life and said, I'm going to design your life. I'm going to make it the way I want to make it. So he didn't know all the details, didn't know where he was going, didn't even know all that God would require of him, but he was willing to go. William Newell said, now also in Abraham the principle of strangerhood is seen. Abraham is called out for the world had left God, so God's people are supposed to leave it today. The world has left God like Ur the Chaldees had left God. And we're supposed to leave that world and follow, follow God. I was talking in our Sunday school hour the, the hour before about the, the problems in our culture with shootings and, and murderings and bombings and, and things like that. And folks, uh, this, this culture that we live in has left God. There's hardly a belief in God anymore at all. And if there's no belief in God, then there's no faith. There there is no morality there is no law why do you have to do anything if there's no god what is the rule of law if there's no lawgiver what is faith if religion is just some kind of a crutch that we pick up along the way and and so if we raise kids in an environment like this with no belief in god no morality no manners if you will and no, no belief that we ought to do things and we ought not to do other things, then where are we? We're in chaos. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes, is the way the book of Judges uh, ended. That's the way Ur of the Chaldees was, and God called Abraham out of that. Now, I say he, he obeyed God's call <coughs> Excuse me. before he knew all the details, but in a way also after he knew the details. Because verse 8 also says after that he would should receive after uh, receiving for uh, foreign inheritance, he obeyed and went out. I mean by that, God did say to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to give you a land, a seed, and a blessing, and in you all nations of the earth will, will be blessed. Do you understand that and believe it? And he says, Yes. I don't know how, I don't know where. But I believe that whatever you've said to me, that is what will happen. And so, you know, God, as I said, calls you and me from this earth to heaven. Do you know everything about heaven? Do you know what God has has for you in heaven? I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor in, entered into the heart of man what God has promised for him. But you're on your way there. You know it's there. You know that there's something for you, and so every detail about it, you look up and read and say, I want to know about that. I want to know all I can, but I don't know everything. So there are some things that he knew, some things that he didn't know. But Abraham is a man of faith. He believed God. God counted it to him for righteousness. Just think of the the unknown that he was in. Abraham, leave and go someplace I'm going to show you. Abraham, I'll bless you, but I'm not going to show you how. Abraham, there's a, there's a city who has foundations waiting for you, but I'm not going to tell you where that is. Abraham said, okay, God, I'll go. You know when the Lord calls us by faith to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't know everything that's involved in it. We just know we're a sinner and we need a savior and if he will save me, I'll go and then we find out all the blessings that comes with it. Secondly, by faith Abraham sojourned in the land we're told in verse 9, he sojourned in the land of promise. You know if you're dwelling it means you kind of live there. But if you're sojourning, you're kind of temporary for a while. That has the word journey in it. But sojourn means, well, you're kind of journeying and kind of, of not. Uh, he, he was a tent dweller among cities and houses and palaces. You know, he had an RV that uh, He could set up anywhere, but everybody else had uh, cities and palaces, and he traveled around in that country uh, that way. Number one, <clears throat> you might say he was temporarily permanent. Uh, he never owned, the he didn't own the land even though he sojourned in it. God had promised him this land, and yet Abraham himself only lived in parts of it. We still say the land belongs to Israel because God promised it to Abraham, but Abraham in his day didn't have it all. They don't even have it all today. It says that he dwelt in tabernacles, right? That is, of course, intense. tents. Uh, for three generations he did, Isaac did, Jacob did. And so here uh, they are dwelling in tents and the rest. There's a a verse in Genesis 13 that says, where where God says to him, Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, and I will give it to thee. Then Abraham removed his tent (laughs) and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre. Still in a tent, even though God said, I will give it to you. Can, Can you believe the promises that God has given to you? even though you own very little of anything on this earth, let me remind you of what you are too in 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God. Dearly beloved, I beseech you then as strangers and pilgrims. One of those words means, I have no home, and the other word means, I have no kin. <laughs> I don't have any home here. I don't have any kindred here. So I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Have your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, but they may By your good works, which they behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. They will see you as a pilgrim and stranger, not owning much in this world, but they will envy what you have because you have that faith in your Creator. And so we're kind of the same way that that Abraham was. So he was temporarily permanent, but I want you to know, thirdly, he was mentally, or secondly, he was mentally absent. Because verse 10 says, he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I mean, his his body was on this earth, but his mind was in heaven. Is that so bad? You know, sometimes we think of that as, boy, you know, somebody like that's got to be a little crazy, doesn't he? No, that's the way Abraham was. That's the way all of these people were. And that's what the middle verses when we read 13 through 16 told us. They had a mind that looked forward to what God had for them, a city who has foundations, a fatherland, we noticed. By the way, uh, when he says that in verse 10, and he says, whose builder and maker is God, the word builder means designer. A tech, Literally, the word is technician. He's the technician of it. And the maker is a word that means the the public worker, kind of like the 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 city of public works god is both of those to us i copied down what revelation says about the new jerusalem that we're going to i won't read it all to you but john says he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city the holy jerusalem descending from, uh, out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like jasper stone, clear as crystal. And John goes on and describes the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And here's Abraham saying, I want that city. I want that kind of city, and, and I'm going to keep my mind on that. If you do, you don't mind living in tents, if you do, you don't mind that you don't have what other people around you have. You know where you're going. I was reading an older writer uh, uh, this last week, and, and he, he gave an illustration I thought was interesting. He, he, told it, he told it like this. He was trying to illustrate that if we would just keep our mind on the Lord and on on our future home, our life here on this earth would be so much more profitable and better. He described it like this. Suppose you're a doctor and you have three patients and you've got to tell them three different things. Number one, you you say to the first patient, you have five days to live. To the second patient, you say, you have five years to live. And to the third patient, you can say, you have 50 years to live. Now, if you did that and you gave them uh, the results of the test, how would each of them live? Do you think that the first man would live the same as the third man? The one that you said, you have five days to live, don't you think he might live a little differently than the one that you said, well, you have 50 years to live? And his point was, of course he would. What if you said you have five hours to live? You would start living a lot differently than if you thought you had 50 years. Then this writer began to describe eternity. We cannot fathom it. There's no way we can understand eternity. You can say, we sing Amazing Grace, and we say when we've been there 10,000 years, somebody says, well, let's change that to 10 million years. What difference does it make in eternity? 10 million years. Ten trillion years. Can you imagine that? How long is ten trillion years? And yet when you get to the end of it, you haven't even begun because there's never an end to eternity. Now, his point is this. Your life that you have on this earth, God might as well be saying to you, you have five minutes to live. Compared to eternity and where you're going, how are you going to handle it? What are you going to do with your five minutes? That's all you have. Because compared to where you will be throughout eternity, this is nothing. And it counts for nothing. And so use every second and every minute you have to live for God. You will be glad throughout eternity. Because when it's over, folks... And you see God face to face, you don't get to say, oh, I didn't do right, let me go back and do it again. You, you won't get the chance. Use it now. So I thought that was a great perspective, and, a- and Abraham saw it. And that's how he lived his life. Thirdly then, Abraham offered up Isaac. Down in verse 17 again, you know the story, if you go back to, to Genesis 22, by faith Abraham, when he was tried offered up Isaac. He that had received the promises offered up his only promised son. I say begotten, but I mean, God promised him a son that would be the heir of the world. And then he said, now I want you to offer up this son as a sacrifice. Genesis 22, uh, we see this. That I think this is the greatest trial that a believer in God ever went through, save the Lord Jesus Christ himself how could it even be done? And you know, because of a story like this, that critics of the Bible and critics of God uh, always bring up a story like this and say, well, how could God ask Abraham to to offer his own son as a sacrifice? How could he even do that? Well, I don't know. So you can take it up with God when you get there and complain to him all you want. I just know he did. And I know the record of it is a true record, so I know it happened. And I know God is a holy and just God and never does anything that is wrong, and so I'll trust Him that He did right. And, of course, when the story's all said and done, we see God's grace in it, don't we? And we see how God delivered. But we're told here, uh, in verse 11, by the way, when we talk about Sarah... She received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. Who was that? That's Isaac. I mean, that's her only son. And Abraham is taking him away to do this. And he's the son of promise. Verse 18 says, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So how is God going to fulfill all of these things that he's promised to me? He's going to do it through this son. All right, take your son and we'll take his life. How can this be, Lord? I don't even—I don't even understand such a thing. How—how how can it happen? And let me ask you this: When God seems unjust, are you still willing to trust Him? It's easy to read a story like Abraham and Isaac because then we know that at the last minute God stepped in, kept Abraham from doing that, which He would knew from the beginning he would do, and then provided a lamb caught in a thicket over here so that he could sacrifice that instead of his own son. God knew from the beginning he would do that. And we read the end of the story and say, oh, that's great. God uh god delivers god has grace god always uh you know does the right thing but then you and i get into dilemmas in our own life where troubles come to us and it seems unjust and we cry out to god and say lord how can you let this happen to me or we say it in so many words and how can you let this happen to my children or or my family or whatever it is and yet god is always in control and terrible things have happened to good people. It's a sinful world. It's a broken world. But in the end, folks, all things are going to work out right, and the way God wants it to. And we ought to trust Him that's right. And Abraham knew, Abraham knew that whatever God was asking him to do was the right thing to do, as tough as it was. So my second thought, besides it being an agonizing dilemma, secondly, he did this with spiritual confidence in God. And that's what verse 19 says. When God asked him to do this, look at this spiritual confidence. Accounting, that word means exactly what we use it for in English. Uh, logissimi, the logic of it, the, 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 the figuring of it was God was able to raise him up from the dead. Even if God lets me take the life of my son, this is the basis for the promise. This is the basis for all that God has promised to me, so he must be going to take his life and raise him from the dead. (laughs) Could you have that kind of faith? Way back there in the Old Testament, Jesus hadn't even died on the cross yet. He didn't even... uh, uh, raised from the dead so how can god do such a thing but abraham knew it you know there's also there's also uh, uh, the same story about about uh paul if you remember that uh paul was stoned and left for dead and he was as good as dead because isaac here doesn't die but as far as abraham is concerned isaac's as good as dead I'm going to take his life, and God, I guess, is going to raise him from the dead. That's all I know, so I'm preparing to do it. And Paul uh, was left for dead. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, We had this sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. If you take my life, that's up to him. I know he raises the dead. Now, folks, it's a great promise that you and I have in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in that, in that rapture passage where you're standing at someone's graveside and you read a verse uh, like that. if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then we can believe that whoever else dies and is put in the ground will also rise again. And we stand there at the grave of loved ones with that same faith that even Abraham and Paul had. If Jesus died and rose again, it's a promise to you and me and everyone that we will one day rise from the dead too. But let, me, let me make this application to, from this, these two verses quickly, and that is, what do you, how do you do when that, when that trial comes into your life? Sometimes it's one huge trial in a person's life. Sometimes it's a series of trials. Uh, The Lord uh, described our cross as a daily cross. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Paul called us a living sacrifice. We're living, and yet we're constantly giving our lives as a sacrifice to him. What happens when the Lord says, here's your cross, here's your burden, This is the toughest thing that I've ever asked you to do in your life. Can you do it? Some of you, it was putting that loved one that you loved so dearly uh, into into the ground, back to the dust. Sometimes it's losing a child in such a way. Sometimes it's just ripping your heart out because of heartache in your life or whatever it is. How do you do when God brings that trial to you? that that mount moriah trial like he brought to abraham well when we're talking about faith abraham not only obeyed god's call he sojourned in the land but he offered up isaac and said here's my life you take it and do what you want to do if our mind and our heart were more in heaven than on earth we would walk better with the lord we would talk better with the lord we would be a better living sacrifice for the Lord. But our problem is that our mind is on earth and not in heaven. Our mind is on what we get out of it here and what it will profit me here and whether or not I feel good about it now and whether or not, uh, you know, other people see me as successful now or, or whatever it is. If our mind were more in heaven we would be walking and talking more now the way we should be, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. So I'm glad that Abraham gave us this picture of a Savior too, a dying, resurrected Savior that can give us eternal life and that hope that we have. I hope that that's a trust that you have. I hope that you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior because that is the ultimate victory. That is what we all need first and foremost. Now I want you to stand with me, if you will, and as we think about the life of Abraham, we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll see ourselves in his life, and we'll ask the Lord to help us in the same way that he helped Abraham. Let's pray together. Father, uh, thank you for the life of Abraham. We see it throughout the Scripture. We see it throughout the Old and the New Testament, and then we see it in this book of faith, in this chapter of faith thank you for him father thank you for his faith thank you that he becomes the example of our very faith that we place in the Lord Jesus Christ we thank you father that uh, he could dwell in tents and look for a city because we know we do the same we thank you that when you ask him for the ultimate sacrifice he was willing to give it help us to be able to do the same thing and father uh, we may not face such challenges Our challenges may be very small compared to what these people faced. But Father, they're big to us, and they're challenging to us. So help us to have the faith that we read in this chapter, the faith of Abraham. Help us, Father, to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who really did give his life for us. So, Father, now speak to our hearts in every way that we need. Bless in this time of invitation today. May you be glorified by it. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John's going to come and lead us in a song. Our invitation is always open as we sing. And after the service,